today, uh, in popular discourse, uh, the idea of economic growth is seen to be uh, to, to be some uh, very evil thing. Supposedly, if you if you defend economic growth, you are against um, you know issues of environmental sustainability. You are ignoring these concerns and you're ignoring uh, concerns about inequality. So we try to really put the focus back on poverty reduction and empowering ordinary people. Welcome to the IA Podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. This podcast asks a tantalising policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, why do nations succeed? Perhaps the oldest and most important question in social science and economics is why humanity began developing in certain places, at least in the last 300 years. This continues to matter today with almost 10% of the world's uh, population living below the extreme poverty line on less than 190 per day. To discuss why countries develop, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Brian Cheng, who is the Assistant Director of the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London, as well as the author of a new book, Institutions and Economic Development, Markets, Ideas and Bottom-Up Change, which he wrote with the great Tom Palmer. So Brian, let's just start with why did you write this book? What, what, what's the contribution that you're making? Thanks, Matthew, for having me today for this conversation. Um, so this book has uh, two aims. First of all, it's synthetic. So it tries to summarize various strands of literature uh, in economic development. And it also tries to put forth a case for the importance of economic freedom, individualism, and market institutions understood broadly as essential ingredients uh, for generating human welfare. Um, so we talk about economic growth and economic development uh, and various contributing factors to it. And uh, on surface, it might seem like a very banal thing to talk about economic growth and <laughs> development, um, but in the first chapter, we talk about how uh, today, uh, in popular discourse, uh, the idea of economic growth is seen to be, uh, to, to be some uh, very evil thing. Uh, because, you know, uh, supposedly if you, if you defend economic growth, you are against, um, you know, issues of environmental sustainability, you are ignoring these concerns and you're ignoring uh, concerns about inequality. So we try to really put the focus back on poverty reduction and empowering ordinary people. This is not to say that other post-material goals like, uh, you know, social oppression, uh, environmental sustainability and, uh, and equality are not important, but they are not antithetical uh, to the issue of material empowerment, which is really still very urgently needed today, considering, as you rightly pointed out, millions of people in the world are still living in poverty. So I think that's the overarching uh, motivation behind it. And in the book, we focus on the importance of markets and economic freedom, but not just markets and economic freedom, which I think uh, people of our persuasion would accept, uh, but also the importance of what we call institutions yeah. and values uh, that make markets work. So yeah, let's let's um, start the top here. So the, the, the premise of your book, um, and I think it's at least shared by most economists, perhaps with the exception of so-called degrowthers, that um, economic growth is good, that more prosperity is good, that that's necessary um, to lift humanity's uh, grand 
spirits and vapors. What I think the mystery, though, is um, what drives, what really drives economic growth and, and why certain places had it at, at certain times and, and others did not. Now, I, I noticed in the book you kind of discuss, the, I suppose, the four main theories of development um, and you come down on, on particularly one part of that, as you said, the institutional side. So we typically hear things about things about leadership, about geography, about culture. I'm wondering if you want to say something about why you don't think those are reasonable explanations. You know, Jacob Diamond, for example, on right. geography is, uh, makes a very, um, he would argue, strong case. Right. So basically, to run through the four schools of thought, they are basically geography, culture, institutions, and importance of political leadership. Now, we do not deny that uh, geography and political leadership may have some uh, roles to play in development. Uh, so we do not negate their importance in any way. But I don't think that is really the prime driver of it. Uh, geography may have an indirect, long-term historical influence on a form of institutional development in some regions. But in this book, we focus more on the environmental factors that influence human action and human behaviour. We believe that individuals have a natural propensity to barter, truck, exchange and create wealth. But the question is about the environment of human decision-making. What are sort of environmental factors that make wealth creation more conducive? And that's why we focus a lot on institutions as well as culture, which, as I said, make markets work. Okay, so now you've kind of mentioned this idea of institutions quite a few times. What are institutions? You know, what is, what is the um, economist's understanding of institutions and, and why do they matter? So I follow the uh, institutional economist Douglas North, who defined institutions as basically rules of the game, humanly devised constraints that structure human interactions. So in simple terms, these are rules, structures, uh, norms uh, that guide human action. They could be formal and informal. Formal would be, you know, the economic system, the political system, the existence of property rights, the rule of law, contract enforcement. Uh, these are rules, institutions that facilitate exchange, that protect person and property, and therefore make wealth creation more conducive. But I also focus a lot on the importance of culture. Some economists do not like to categorize culture under institutions, um, you know, I, I don't think that really matters for our purpose, but, we, but we've also focused on the importance of ideas. Because human beings are, are motivated uh, by ideas and what they think and believe. So what people think and believe matters a lot for the cause of society, for the cause of social change, and therefore economic development. So we focus on these things. Is that effectively kind of the Jim McCroskey worldview that you know, a certain set of... Uh, pro-enterprise, pro-trade, pro-innovation ideas are necessary as an underpinning to be able to develop economic growth. Exactly, certainly. So we, we definitely embrace uh, McCloskey's thesis that ideas expressed through rhetoric is really what matters. Um, in, in this particular uh, book, we do not fall on a specific school of thought because we are trying to synthesize some different ideas. So I used the, the, the framework from Peter Batke, economist from George Mason University, who offered the framework of getting the prices right, getting the institutions right, and getting the culture right. right? So, so many economists in the past talked about the importance of market reforms. That's just getting the prices right. And that's true and that's very important. But sometimes in history, we see that these market reforms didn't really work out. In the 80s and 90s, some of these Washington consensus market reforms didn't work out. Right? And it didn't work out not because something was inherently defective about markets, 
but because the institutional preconditions were not present. And so if you do not think about getting the institutions right and just focus on getting the prices right, then you might open yourself to criticisms from the other side, you know, saying that, oh, look, these market reforms have failed. Yeah. Therefore, something is wrong with these market reforms. But it's not because markets are inherently defective, but there were no institutional preconditions there. But once we think about these institutional preconditions, like having property rights and the rule of law, then things actually become a bit more murky because how then do we construct these institutions in countries which do not have a tradition and a history of these liberal institutions? And that's where I think economists may not really have a very good answer to these questions. Yeah, I'm just going to unpack that a little bit more because I, I think the kind of, I suppose, Washington consensus ideas are very much out of fashion um, in development studies and um, economic growth and and perhaps they've got a fair case in, in certain instances where, where you, for example, if you point to Russia, you can say, well, you know, they tried um, very harsh pro-market uh, policies. It clearly, you know, didn't work very effectively. You know, I suppose Russia got a bit richer than it was previously, but you know, extreme political problems and um, now uh, back at war with uh, Ukraine, surely that would be you know, a big strike against this idea that uh, markets are effective. But is it then they, they don't have the proper institutions? Is that the kind of argument you'd like to make? Yes, that's right. Uh, so it's important to get the institutions right to have these uh, uh, you know, rules, the framework that uh, markets are embedded within. But uh, of course, it's not easy um, to, to construct them. It's one thing to know that these institutions are important, but it's another to, to have a mechanism to explain how they are formed and how they are to be constructed. So that's where I fall on the issue of uh, culture. And I believe that institutions and markets are very culturally embedded. And it's important to get the culture right. Uh, but of course, how do we get the culture right? Um, that, that's of course a very, very murky and, and difficult uh, question to answer. So that's why in the book, we talk about the importance of cultural entrepreneurs. Cultural entrepreneurs we define as individuals, organizations, or coalitions of people who champion ideas, who champion new ways and new modes of living, right? Just like uh, economic entrepreneurs champion new products, cultural entrepreneurs champion new institutions and new policies and ideas. And therefore, they shift the Overton window and they shift what's possible in the realm of social change. And I think that's very important when understanding the cause of development. Uh, so this is not deterministic. We cannot determine and we cannot predict how institutions will change, how societies will develop over five to 10 years. But I think this mechanism of bottom-up change through cultural entrepreneurs, I think is really what explains a lot of the uh, positive uh, steps towards progress and welfare that we provide through the many case studies. Uh, in this handbook. Yeah, I, I think there's a kind of interesting tension here, which is you want a kind of a global encouragement of a bottom-up market system, and you want to you know, encourage countries to develop kind of a, a certain culture or certain institutions um, at, from, uh, often from outside. But I suppose what you really need is the, those, those local policy entrepreneurs. Um, do you have kind of any, I suppose, further thoughts on what can be done, because this, this seems to be the relentless issue in, in talking about development studies. You know, it's, it's relatively easy to say, oh, we should give X country foreign aid, or you know, they should build this type of infrastructure, or they need to fi finance their skills sector. Um, this seems um, 
not impossible, but almost impossible to you know look at a, a country that has poor institutions and poor culture and say, well, what you need to do is change your the way everyone thinks about the state of the the world, and that'll lead to economic growth. It's kind of almost feels great if you can do it, but how? So that I think is the not just million dollar but the billion dollar question to answer the how question. I I don't think I have a perfect answer. Because actually, as we document in this book, even as we think about the historical experience of the West and many nations which experience development, the role of historical accidents seems to be uh, uh, very important. Even uh, in, in Adam Smith, you know, when he traced uh, the, 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 the rise of trade and, uh, and the rise of markets, there were a lot of random shocks and historical accidents that uh, facilitated the rise of market exchange even in a European context. And even in Deidre McCloskey's account, there were a lot of uh, 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 historical accidents that allowed rhetorical changes to start bubbling up uh, in Northwestern Europe. So it's not easy to replicate these historical accidents. So I think what I would say uh, in the present context is that we just need to have an open conversation of ideas and we just need to continue having uh, a discourse, having debate to expose people uh, in these countries who may not have a heritage of liberalism to understand the importance of individualism, competition, and these ideas we are so fond of, and to allow uh, organically organizations and peoples in those countries to take charge of development on their own terms. So I don't think there's really anything that we as outsiders can do to engineer this, but really to empower these actors on the ground to take matters into their own hands. And indeed, in this handbook, we interview various NGOs and, and development practitioners from countries like Southeast Asia to Latin America, who are indeed um, you know, championing market reforms on their own terms, on their own cultural terms. And I think that's the best we can do to empower them not really to engineer outcomes from afar. And, and of course, do you think about, I suppose, some success stories in this field? I mean, whilst, for example, Russia was not particularly successful, um, the likes of Poland has been extremely successful. You know, there's some estimates Poland could be richer than the UK in the coming decades, and that's a country that was very much under the Iron Curtain and, and very much had a kind of communist system. I also think in terms of economic development, the kind of miracle stories of East Asia or um, that, that you focus on quite a lot in, in uh, the cases of Singapore and Hong Kong, um, maybe they have their kind of particular colonial background to them, which we can talk about in a second. But South Korea doesn't quite have that. Um, Taiwan doesn't quite have that. Japan doesn't quite have that. These these countries have managed to have um, these successful culture and institutions for, for economic growth. Is, is there something we can learn from those particular cases? Certainly. So I think the development experience of East Asia is a very uh, a huge phenomenon uh, in, the, in, in the late 20th century. Something I'm very passionate about because I come from uh, Singapore, as you know, written a lot about that. And the reason why I'm passionate about East Asia is because um, the, the, their experience challenge, uh, according at least to some development practitioners, heterodox economists, uh, they challenge... Uh, the prescriptions of what they call neoliberal uh, development economies because supposedly East Asia did not develop because they followed uh, you know, a free market uh, economics. They were capitalists in a broad sense of the term but they engaged in industrial policy interventions and they were also very Confucian, they were meritocratic, they did not uh, have a, a liberal democracy at least um, you know, for a few decades before obviously South Korea and Taiwan became democratic. So, so, so I think, uh, you know, I, I'm passionate in my research 
to really uh, meet these challenges on their own grounds. Um, and therefore, in this book, I offer a defense of the market um, that is not wedded to neoclassical theory. Because in the development literature today, neoclassical theory is, continue, uh, is, 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 is being criticized for being blind to institutions, for being blind to cultural variations in the world, and therefore being a very impoverished way of analyzing uh, uh, economic development, right? But of course, therefore, I question why do you need to be, um, you know, uh, wedded to, to neoclassical theory if you are offering a defense of the market, right? So obviously, you know, if you're, if you're heterodox, uh, it does not always mean that you must be, uh, that you must be anti-market, right? So for example, Austrians, they are, they are heterodox, hmm. but they are pro-market, right? But at the same time, if you're neoclassical, you could also be anti-market. Because in the socialist calculation debate, there were some neoclassical economists who used that framework to argue for socialism, right? So I think, therefore, we need to separate the methodology with conclusion. And that's why I think in the book, you know, we focus on scholars like Eleanor Ostrom, uh, Douglas North, and Friedrich Hayek, because, um, you know, of their, what we call, uh, uh, different methodological starting points. They, 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 they reject neoclassical assumptions, but yet they still defend markets. So I think that is a, a, a combination which I think is actually very important, which if I do not make this connection, I will not be able to meet the challenge of heterodox economies hmm. on their own terms. So what, what do you consider the, the, the heterodox challenges effectively that um, you know, what leads to development is that kind of, I suppose, big development state, the kind of, I suppose, almost mezzocato worldview that um, I don't know if it's even really that heterodox anymore, to be honest, it feels almost mainstream and a lot of kind of economics departments. Yes, so let me describe more carefully what I mean by, by heterodox and what is the nature of their criticism against mainstream economics. So it's not just an issue of policy prescriptions in terms of entrepreneurial state, but it's really a way of studying uh, the economy, which is very different. I'd like to share uh, a quote uh, from an academic article written in the heterodox journal in 1995. And uh, an open quote, it says, Neoclassical theory treats people as atomistic individuals <laughs> who are bound together only through market forces. People are reduced to isolated creatures of the market, devoid of history, cultural traditions, political opinions, social relationships beyond simple market exchanges. The conventional assumption is that non-market relations, the broader environments within which economies operate, are universal, unchanging and have no significant impact on economic activities. Stripped of their social relations and historical dynamism, economies are just technical devices for allocating resources. The consequences are unrealistic and trivial results derived from narrow, simplistic analysis that ignore the complexities surrounding third world economic realities. So that is actually the nub of their criticism. And for me, I'm actually very sympathetic to their criticism because I think to do good economic science, we actually need to pay attention to these complexities, to the way people are influenced by cultural differences, local contexts, power relations, social oppression. Um, you know, and, and these are things which are very important. And I totally agree with these heterodox economists uh, that neoclassical theories cannot account for them. But just because heterodox economies, uh, sorry, neoclassical economies can, cannot account for them, it does not mean that therefore you jump to the conclusion that we need to throw markets mm -hmm. out of 
you know, the window altogether, which is a conflation that heterodox economists like Hajun Chang likes to make. They, 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 they conflate the methodology with the policy prescription. And therefore, um, in, in this handbook, we offer a defense of the market on heterodox grounds, as it were. Right? So that's why the great Hayek is very important. Right? Yes, individuals are important for, for Hayek, but he rejects uh, rational choice. Individuals do not have perfect information. They are not uh, rational choosers you know, of, of their plans, um, but individuals are embedded within a web of social relations. Right? So Hayek had a conception of individualism which is embedded in their social context. And I think that allows me, allows us in this book to offer a defense of markets while at the same time being very sensitive to issues of culture, issues of context and historical path dependency. And it is by doing so that we can then engage uh, these scholars on their own grounds when we tackle uh, things like East Asian culture and East Asian developmental state. So I think, I hope, you know, our practitioners and scholars will be more aware of this methodological distinction. Yeah. yeah. So the, the, I suppose the central point there is that there's a kind of a very big distinction between suggesting that uh, you know people aren't perfectly perfect market actors and that they're impacted by their culture and their institutional format. That doesn't mean that markets are then not an effective way to bring together people's preferences and, and organize society. And I mean, you focus a lot then in on. So once you get the institution ideas right, um, you can then have the, all the things you like, like trade and innovation and entrepreneurship, which are the kind of, I suppose, what's talked about more so in, in popular discourse about, often about economic growth. You know, if you, if you listen to, you maybe hear something about skills or something about um, infrastructure, things like that. But you do genuinely hear a lot of things about trade, innovation, entrepreneurship. But I, I suppose that's kind of secondary for you in a way. Once you get those underlying issues sorted, you can then have those market dynamics. Exactly. Because I think today most people accept that markets are important, right? But how markets are, are to be realised, how markets are being structured, how they uh, manifest themselves uh, in different cultural contexts, I think that for me is the interesting question. Because capitalism in, in America is different from capitalism in Korea or capitalism in Japan, right? And I think if we do not have the methodological toolkit to understand these differences, then we cannot speak uh, to these uh, cultural differences across these cultural contexts. And that's why I think I, I'm trying to make some methodological argument as well. So another point that, that's often made in the kind of development debate, and, and it's definitely come up a lot in recent years, is this question around what was the contribution of colonialism. So the people will say, the only reason Britain got rich was because of empire. Um, that's what allowed the West to dominate. Uh, it's because they colonialized, colonized other countries and uh, you know, did terrible things like the slave trade and that then led to economic development. What kind of role do you think that argument plays? So first of all, we, we, we need to understand this argument um, is not new. Uh, even in today's uh, discussions, this idea that uh, markets are somehow a reflection of colonialism. Uh, it's an imposition by Western powers uh, remains uh, very popular and that therefore fits uh, into uh, what we call anti-colonial arguments which tend to be very socialist, tend to be very interventionist. But there is no logical necessity to combine both of that. In fact, one can be a market liberal 
one can be what I call a, a, a Smithian liberal and at the same time condemn colonialism, condemn imperialism, which is actually indeed, what... Indeed, Adam Smith did. Indeed, yeah, Adam, yeah. Smith, uh, indeed Adam Smith did. And he had a very uh, strong denunciations of, uh, of British colonialism. In fact, he characterized, you know, uh, uh, the East India Company, uh, you know, as, as, as an unjust organization, right? So, so, so colonialism was not just some inexpedient practice, it was an injustice. It was an injustice of, of, and, and of violating the natural rights, the natural justice of these uh, natives who had actually done European peoples no wrong. You know, so 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 it's important to interpret Adam Smith not just as uh, as as some utilitarian, which in a sense you know he has often been framed that way, but you know if I may actually read out you know uh, uh, he said in the Wealth of Nations every man as long as he does not violate the laws of justice, the laws of justice is left perfectly free to pursue his own interests in his own way. So he has some conception of natural justice, which he found colonialism to be violating. Mm. Um, and, and the same with slavery and the slave trade as well. Exactly, exactly. And, and, uh, and, and, and actually that's why it's very important for, for, for market liberals to be very sensitive to these issues and, and actually to, to denounce it. But also mo moving down this line of thinking, uh, it will also be wrong to say that colonialism is responsible for the poverty of nations. Okay? Because there are some countries that were never colonised that remain poor. For example, uh, Ethiopia and Liberia, they were never colonised. but they experienced poverty. And conversely, you had countries uh, who were former colonies, uh, who uh, experienced uh, great wealth and prosperity, right? The United States is an example, India is an example, China is an example, is an example. And, and obviously Australia, uh, Australia Singapore, Hong Kong. So I would say uh, even though colonialism is definitely immoral from a moral point of view, when you look at the uh, practical institutional uh, aspect Sometimes there could be some unintended uh, beneficial effects. This is not because of the goodness of, uh, of Western uh, uh, officials, but sometimes uh, through some uh, accidental transference of certain institutions and policies, these colonies inherited uh, you know, good institutions, yeah. which then allow them to uh, sometimes to experience that wasn't, development some, over time. Sometimes that was intentional though, of course. You know, there was an intentional effort to transfer certain institutions or certain ideas to, to the colonies. Maybe not uh, as much in all cases and not necessarily always the right ideas. But I think you can find some evidence, at least, I, I think, to suggest That's that. right. So I think uh, there, there are different theories on how colonialism may affect uh, institutional development. Some uh, economists focus on the geographical conditions if there were some uh, favorable geographical conditions that then facilitated the transference of uh, liberal or in a sense a sound inclusive institutions onto the colonial uh, context right and some uh, economists focus more on the identity of the colonial empires themselves for example if you compare british colonies as compared to french or belgian colonies clearly uh, british colonies have been much more successful um, and, and it's in part because they were slightly more uh, benevolent, uh, more liberal, right? And therefore, the institutions that these British colonies received were in that respect comparatively more conducive for development. And of course, Singapore and Hong Kong are the prime examples. And of course, you know, the, the Belgians being famously some of the, some of the worst. 
on the other end exactly. of that. Um, well, thank you so much for this absolutely fascinating discussion. And, and I think it's for anyone who's, who's interested in, you know, the, the kind of very um, good, broad introduction to economic development and, and liberal ideas. Um, I, I think it's, it's a kind of fascinating and, and despite you know, being described as a textbook is, is very uh, readable and, and interesting and important. Um, I noted that uh, you've got some very impressive quotes on the book, including one from William Isserley, who's a, a professor at the um, NYU uh, Development Research Institute, who says, this is the best tr textbook treatment of liberalism and development that I have ever seen. So that's very high praise and, and congratulations for, on that, Brian. Thank you very much, Matthew and the IE for having me today. Uh, if you are enjoying the IEA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or follow us on YouTube and uh, we'll be back again next week for more content.